The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So we remain standing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Not only that you can see into our hearts and minds, that you know what we're thinking, how we're feeling, but that you came in order to forgive us of our sins and heal us of our brokenness. As we turn to the story of Scripture today and consider our fall and our rebellion, may the hope of this passage be held forth before us. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In 2010, the rapper Sean Combs, who is also known as Puff Daddy or P. Diddy, uh, released a single called Coming Home. The song went on to break the top 10 of the Billboard charts, sold over a million copies here in the States. It's a song about loss and a song about longing. In the chorus, he sings, I need to get back to the place I belong. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Tell the world I'm coming home. The music video for Coming Home was shot in the Mojave Desert with a burned out home as the primary setting. The visual imagery reinforced the lyrical message of feeling lost and homeless. In an interview with BBC Radio One, Combs said this. He said, I've been lost in life. I'm still lost in life. Sometimes you get lost through drug addiction or you break up with your partner or remission from cancer, etc. You struggle to find your way back to yourself. That's what coming home is about. The song, it gives voice to a sense of dislocation and a longing for home. But home isn't so much a place as it is an entire way of life, a life without internal contradictions or alienation from loved ones. It's a song that any one of us could sing. 
Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis tell the story of creation. And the phrase that we hear over and over in these chapters is, God saw that it was good. Our earthly home is a good place, and we are glorious creatures. In Genesis 3, however, everything changes with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And so as the chapter ends, we read this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the garden, Adam and Eve had enjoyed life with God in the perfection of his creation. They had been at home. But having chosen death in their rebellion, God could not allow Adam and Eve access to the tree of life. So he sent them out. He exiled them. And human beings have been lost and longing for home ever since. Last week, we began a four-part series called How to Be a Human Being. It's an attempt to understand what it means to be human and then to live the lives that God intends for us. Over these four weeks, we are making our way through the four main acts of the story of Scripture. We began with Act 1, the creation, last week. Today, we look at Act 2, the fall of humanity. And over the following two weeks, we'll consider Acts 3 and 4, which tell the story of redemption and our hope for a new creation. Last week in Act 1, we saw that human beings, we, are dependent on God. We are made in His image and crowned with His glory. We were made also for the purpose of stewarding the earth, and we were made for one another. It was a great picture. Today, however, everything comes crashing to the ground as the very good of life in the garden is replaced by the curse of exile in Act 2. How did this happen? What exactly is wrong with us? Well, in order to answer these questions, we need to enter into the strange, rich story of Genesis 3, which you can find on page 2 of those red Bibles. The fall of humankind, it all begins with a seemingly innocuous question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, whom we soon learn is an embodiment of evil, isn't actually seeking clarification. This is temptation dressed up as conversation. And the temptation is for Eve to reject God's will and to trust her own instead. As the conversation unfolds, the serpent is a bit more direct, suggesting to Eve that perhaps God was trying to hold you back by limiting your diet. Perhaps you are more like God than you realize. Well, following this suggestive sequence, Eve and then Adam make a decision that changes the course of history. They eat. And in eating, they chose their will over God's. They chose independence over joyful dependence. 
By doing so, they severed their special relationship with God, sullied the glory they had been given, and immediately entered into conflict with one another and the world that God had given them. The very good of creation became the very wrong of the fall. Now, this story functions for us in two ways. It is an origin story describing how human beings came to live in exile through the rebellion of our earliest ancestors. It's also an example story because it tells the story of every human heart. This is not just the story of Adam and Eve. This is the story of each one of us as we rebel against God. Many years after this account was written down, David expressed the truth about our human nature in Psalm 14. Saying this, he said, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The first thing that we learn from Genesis 3 is that to be human is to be sinful. To be human is to be sinful. Now, sin is one of those words that carries with it a lot of baggage. But I think it's a word worth keeping, first, because it's biblical. Second, because it tells us something vitally important about who we are. Something so important that if we don't understand it, we will never find our way back home. Humans are sinful. And what the Bible means by this is not simply that human beings do bad things, though, of course, we do do bad things. Sin is more than this. It's a corruption of the image in which we were created, and it's a distortion of our character. The theologian Neil Planning wrote a fascinating book several years ago called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in this book, he explores the nature of human sinfulness. He writes about sin as it emerges in the context of creation. And he says, sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. He goes on to explain that God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Sin begins with the rejection of God. There's no other way to explain what Eve and Adam are doing when they eat the fruit. It's the one thing. It is the one thing in the entire garden they have been told not to eat. But they do so anyway. And this isn't just an act of disobedience. It's a rejection of God's authority and an act of rebellion. In this moment, Adam and Eve are saying to God, thanks for everything. We'll take it from here. Now, we go about our lives in exactly the same way. We live in a world that says, be yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or who to be. If modern Western culture has a gospel, it's that. But in Genesis 3, that's the message of the serpent, and it's the heart of human rebellion. It is the anti-gospel. And having chosen this anti-gospel, we then have to live with the consequences. In verse 7, after their rebellion, we're told that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. They saw their nakedness and they covered themselves. 
Now, at the end of chapter 2, their nakedness had not been a source of shame because their dignity came from God. Having rejected God, however, and discarded their glory, now when they saw themselves, they were filled with shame. So they hid from each other, covering their bodies, and then they hid from God by hiding in the bushes. Verse 8, I think, is one of the most haunting sentences ever written. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just like children, Adam and Eve hid from their father. And just like children, they did so for two reasons, guilt and shame. They knew that they were guilty of disobedience and that their actions merited punishment. It's why Adam says that he was afraid when he heard the Lord God walking. They also felt the shame of what they'd done. The glory that they'd worn so easily had been tarnished and it had been turned to ugliness. As sinful human beings, we live in hiding. Though we may be so blind to God that we're unaware we've done anything wrong, we all have a sense that something's wrong with us. And so we hide from each other and we hide from God. In sin, we become twisted versions of what we were created to be, burdened by guilt and by shame. The Apostle Paul describes our predicament in Romans 7, and you can hear the shame, sorrow, and confusion that accompany the state of sin in which we live. He writes this, he says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We are sinful human beings who have rejected God, followed our own ways, and become an ugly distortion of who we were created to be. We bear the guilt of our rebellion, and we wear the shame of tarnished glory. And we live our lives with this sense of being lost and longing for home. This is a tragedy of our humanity. To be human is to be sinful. The second thing we learn from Genesis 3 is that to be human is also to be broken. So when Adam and Eve declared their independence from God, he allowed them to walk. He allowed them to walk away, but that came with consequences. In the second half of Genesis 3, God tells them what to expect from life. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." 
Adam and Eve's rebellion had consequences. And those consequences included physical limitations, pain, an adversarial relationship with the earth itself, and ultimately death. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our way in the world is broken, and so are we. Now, when I say broken, I'm not talking about sin so much as I'm talking about the hard reality of life in a fallen world where there is chronic pain, car accidents, cancer, bipolar disorder, and natural disasters. There are physical, mental, social, and environmental consequences of living in a world in rebellion against God. Now, everyone I know, everyone in this room has experienced brokenness in in your lives. And you've experienced brokenness in the lives of your loved ones. We long to be put back together again, and we long to be healed. My wife, Alicia, has a beautiful pottery picture uh, that's been a favorite for 20 years. And it recently cracked. I'm not going to share who was to blame or how it happened. I don't want to incriminate the guilty in our family. This pottery pitcher recently cracked in such a way that it didn't shatter, but it can no longer hold water. It's still in one piece, but it can't do what it was made to do. It's beautiful, but it's broken. That's us. In our rebellion, we broke. We are still glorious creatures, but we cannot be what we were made to be or do what we were made to do. We can't hold water. But you know, we ache with the memory of our glory and our purpose. And out of this ache, we fill ourselves up with whatever we think might stay put. That place in our hearts that God is meant to fill, we stuff with every conceivable alternative. We may hide from God in our rebellion, but we are always seeking to replace him. It is a strange form of hide and seek. Because we live in a world that has rejected God as the source of our humanity and fulfillment, we look for other reasons to explain our pain and our sorrow. We say to each other, the reason you're in pain is because other people are to blame. Or because you just haven't filled yourself up with the right things. We see the blame game right away in Genesis 3. Eve blames the serpent for her disobedience. Adam blames Eve and God when he says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. We see that desperate need to fill ourselves with God alternatives as the story of Scripture unfolds, as human beings turn to fame, wealth, sex, power, etc., in an attempt to find meaning and purpose but we're cracked, we're broken, and everything we put in leaks out. As Neil Plantinga puts it, if we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. We are sinful creatures, and we are broken creatures. And this means that we are profoundly wounded creatures as well. 
And here, I, I want for you to pause in order to think about your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones who don't know Jesus. Now, I know too many Christians, too many fellow followers of Jesus who believe that the problem with their non-Christian friends is that they're just too stubborn or stupid to see the truth of the Bible. So when they talk to their friends about Jesus, they tend to dump lots of information and argumentation on them. They forget that their neighbors aren't just sinful, but broken and wounded as well. Sharing the gospel with someone, it means taking them by the hand and leading them to Jesus. Now imagine that the hand you are about to take hold of is broken. There are shattered bones across the palm and in the fingers. You have to take hold of it tenderly. And you have to remember that when you take them to Jesus, it's not just to be forgiven, it's to be healed. Now we'll talk about Act 3 and the story of redemption next week, but I, I want to look ahead just the slightest bit because I want you to notice something in the story of Jesus that I read from Mark 2. When the paralytic, the paralytic man was lowered through the roof and he was set at Jesus' feet, what did Jesus do? He forgave his sins and he healed his body. He dealt with his sin and his brokenness. He washed him clean and he made him whole. Even in the darkness of Act 2 of the story of Scripture, we get a hint that Act 3 is coming. When God turned up in the garden in the cool of the day, he knew what had happened. He knew what Adam and Eve had done, and he didn't have to come back. He didn't have to come back, but he did, and he went searching for them. Where are you? Is what he called. Where are you? Though they were sinful and broken, though they were guilty and shamed, he came for them. We too are sinful and broken. This is what it means to be human after the fall of Adam and Eve. These things are inescapable. There's nothing we can do about them. There is only one who can forgive us, and it's the one we've scorned by seeking our independence and rejecting him. And there is only one who can heal us, the one who made us in the first place, who sustains us with his breath and comes searching for us when we hide. Act two of the story of Scripture tells us that we need a miracle of grace if ever we are to recover our true humanity. And that miracle will come as the pages of Scripture unfold. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you as those who have chosen independence over dependence as those who are sinful and broken, who need forgiveness and healing. May we be honest about these things and about ourselves. And may we be honest about the world around us. 
We pray especially that you would give us a spirit of tenderness to the broken and wounded whom we know and love. That as we take them by the hand to lead them to Jesus, we might do so tenderly. Giving them the gospel of forgiveness of sins and the gospel of healing of brokenness. May we know the power of this gospel today and the hope that we have, even as sinful, broken human beings. We ask these things in the name of our Redeemer, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.